Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. listening audience welcome to health in harlem on whcr 90.3 fm and the health in harlem podcast my name is dr maurice selby and uh just going to start out by saying we have an agenda on this program uh tonight ladies and gentlemen and uh, while there are no financial disclosures disclosures at least on my end (laughs) uh, and we are not trying to sell you anything uh there should be no ads on this program and if you ever hear an ad Uh, on this program, especially on the podcast, please comment on that and let me know because um, we don't want any conflicts of interest. And really, we just want to bring you the best information uh, possible. But we definitely have an agenda. And essentially, we want to empower you with information, reliable and scientifically backed information. And uh, with that, we really aim to start a real conversation. And I actually have some distinguished guests with us here on this program The first is Dr. Jane Zucker. Dr. Zucker is the Assistant Commissioner in the Bureau of Immunizations at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. We also have Dr. Noel Manindo, who is an Assistant Commissioner of the Harlem Neighborhood Health Action Center, also at the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene in New York City. And finally, we have Dr. Italo Brown. He's an Assistant Professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Stanford University and clinical instructor in social emergency medicine at Stanford Hospital. And he was actually recently named in the 40 under 40 leaders in minority health by the National Minority Quality Forum. Um, And so he's joining us as well. And our topic um, really is very, very important, especially at this time as we're dealing with this crisis, this pandemic uh, with COVID-19. And we're gonna talk about the development of the COVID-19 vaccine 
and the hesitancy and sort of mistrust that we see, um, especially in minority communities um, with respect to uh, this potential vaccination that's, that's in development. And so uh, welcome to the program, folks. Now, ladies and gentlemen, just a background real quick. We went through a lot of technical difficulties to bring you this program, but this is the, I think this is just the passion, right? Um, that we can see in um, our public health professionals because we're sitting here actually on a Sunday morning recording. I, I got to throw that in there too. Um, so the commitment is real. We, they are really excited about uh, bringing you this information. So welcome to the show, folks. Hello. Glad to be, to be here. here. Yes, yes. Thank you. According to the Pew Research survey conducted in April and May of this year, 54% of Black respondents said that they definitely or probably would get a COVID-19 vaccine versus 74% of uh, the white and Hispanic population um, and respondents in that survey. And uh, on July 27th of this year, two 30,000 person randomized double blind controlled clinical trials um, got underway featuring candidate vaccines from Moderna uh, and also um, another vaccine candidate um, produced by a partnership between Pfizer and BioNTech. Um, so this thing is really, you know, sort of um, in rapid development, uh, this potential vaccination. And it is crucial, especially in minority com communities, as we have seen. And we're just going to re, you know, reiterate those um, statistics. Blacks dying at a higher rate uh, from COVID-19, 2.5 times that of white people. Um, and Hispanic Native American and Native Americans dying at a rate of 1.3 times that uh, of white people. Um, in this country. And so we are seeing these huge disparities. And, um, you know, unfortunately, there is a big concern about um, this potential intervention, this vaccine not being accepted by the communities that, that need it most. And so that's why we're here to talk about this. Oh, see, I see you, Dr. Brown, you made it. <laughs> hey, what's going on? I'm definitely man? in here, man. Yeah, that's what's up. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you for joining us, man. So I think we could just jump right in and uh, really, um, Dr. Zucker, if you care to comment, just where are we in this, uh, in this pipeline of development for this vaccination, this COVID-19 vaccine? Well, as someone who works with vaccines, it's an incredibly exciting time that in such a short time, there are so many vaccine candidates. There's like over 165 that are in various stages. Yeah. Some of those are in the laboratory only, not yet in, in people, but it is just um, amazing. And I just want to preface uh, what my remarks by saying on uh, the last pandemic, which was in 2009, which was H1N1 influenza, it took months for a vaccine to even be available. Mm -hmm. And really were a tremendous number of investments made in vaccine development and research, which is really what has allowed the rapid development of the vaccines that are now being tested. If we didn't have new technologies, we wouldn't be where we are, where we are today. So I think that is very important that this has really been, you know, a decade of, of investment in, in much of this technology. Got it. So I think for, uh, for it based in the US, the two vaccines that you mentioned, the one that's um, BioNTech with Pfizer and Moderna, are the two that are the leading candidates in the sense that they're that they're sort of 
first in the race, so to speak, with uh, the first ones that are in large scale trials in the United States. Got it. And so when we look at the, the rapidity with which these vaccines are being developed, right? And even just the name of this project, um, or at least from the federal level, the initiative to speed the development of these vaccines, right? Operation Warp Speed, um, while it is, I agree with you, exciting that we are, you know, endeavoring to really get this done in sort of a record time. We're talking about significantly cutting down um, that development, right? From previous sort of four-year period with, um, uh, I believe is the mumps vaccine, uh, if I was correct, that was sort of the fastest that we know um, developed a, a viable vaccine um, to, to this being developed within the span of a year almost, um, or a little bit more than a year, you know, it's exciting, but also I think that is where some of the hesitancy lies and that it's kind of right. like uh, we're on a highway, right, without a speed limit and that some of the traditional uh, mechanisms in place to ensure that we have not only an efficacious or an effective vaccine, but also a vaccine that is safe for individuals. Um, I think that's where some of the, um, the, the hesitancy um, and even mistrust lies. Um, so how, what are the safety standards and sort of are, how are we sort of committing to that, even with the speed of development? Right. So that mumps vaccine was back in the 60s mm -hmm. and, and was, was really very different. Those were the days where the researcher actually took their own daughter's vaccine back to the laboratory. That's right. That's right. Yes. It's a fascinating story. Yep. Right. So, um, so I think what's the vaccines that are being tested now, they're, they're called, and, and not to go too technical, but mRNA, which is messenger RNA. And that's sort of what our bodies use to make the proteins that, that our bodies need, need to function. So that's all RNA is. And what they've learned from the, this SARS-CoV-2 virus is that there's a protein on the surface of, that, of the virus and it's antibodies to that protein which appear to provide protection. Now there are questions about what antibody levels and how much protection, but they were able to take the gene that codes for that protein mm -hmm. and put it in another sort of vector or medium to, um, you know, to then test it in, in the laboratory. So now we have the technology to, to make these RNAs you know, to very easily and to actually, it's almost like plug and play Mm -hmm. in a way to put them into another vector to deliver it you know, to the body, you know, as, as a vaccine. So it's really very different kind of even making of a, a vaccine. And so um, I think what's, what's usually you do, um, and if it's not too much detail, I mean, there are multiple phases in a vaccine trial. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work that happens in a laboratory. You often have an animal model, so you're testing in an animal. Mm -hmm. model, whether or not the vaccine can prevent infection. And then you do what's called a phase one trial. And usually that's, that's as many as 15 people. I mean, it's a really small number. Yes. Often what they're doing is just, they're trying to find the right dose of the vaccine. Just like your doctor, if you, they put you on blood pressure pills, you know the right dose, right? They'll start maybe low dose, you know, see how you react. Does yes. it your blood pressure go higher, you know, so they would do that same kind of process 
with the vaccine and they look for immediate safety signals. You know, if these 15 people were, were there a major problem. Okay, no, then we can go on and test a next dose, a higher dose. And so they've been doing those phase one trials and what they're doing instead of finishing a phase one trial and then starting phase two, they're sort of start phase two while they're still doing phase one. So they're doing, the purpose of phase two is to look at hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. Is the vaccine safe in hundreds of people? So you're getting more data, you know, because and these people are very, very closely monitored when they're, when they're in a vaccine trial. So for some of the vaccines, let's say they started with younger, like people 18 to 55, because mm -hmm. they don't have underlying medical problems. So you can test the vaccine in that same group, you know, more of them for safety, and then start looking at the vaccine in an older population, you know, over 55. Well, like, so you're doing phase one and phase two at the same time. And that's how they've been speeding up the process. Got it. By doing it that way, not any compromises with vaccine safety. And vaccines are licensed by the uh, Food and Drug Administration, part of the federal government. And they've actually outlined a great um, process, like the document of what they expect for safety and what they expect for vaccine effectiveness in order to have a vaccine license. And I think it's really important um, for your listeners to know that the, this document, there's no shortcuts, you know, that are, that are acceptable, you know, mm -hmm. in, in what, what the FDA has, has laid out. Got it. And even just with um, uh, Operation Warp Speed itself, as you said, um, and thank you for that, um, Dr. Zucker, and just really just laying out that sort of detail and how this is done. Um, and so those safety mechanisms are, mechanisms are not what's bypassed. It's right. really from a funding standpoint that uh, also helps accelerate things, right? So yes, um, exactly. it's literally that the government took a bunch of money and said, hey, to these companies, um, look, we need a vaccine and we are going to help you defray the costs of developing this vaccine um, while keeping all of those standards in place for safety um, and quality control, but we're just going to sort of expedite that by giving you the resources to um, you know, make that as uh, happen as, as quickly as possible. And also some infrastructure developments too. I understand, I think even the military is involved in sort of helping um, at, as needed for logistical purposes, helping um, right. with uh, getting that done. They're actually making the vaccine now, like once they, they have the candidate and they're making it and they're sort of putting it aside. So just so it will be ready because they don't want to have a trial, let's say in several months and say, oh, now we have to first start making the vaccine. Got it. Making it now on the hopes that we'll have all of the good safety data and data that it works. And then we'll be ready to move quickly. Right. And distribute. And, and, yeah. and if the vaccine doesn't work, then all of that gets wasted, you know, and would be destroyed. But if it works, then we're, we're in a position to really quickly start, you know, to um, offer vaccine to people. Got it. All right. Excellent. Um, and and um, Dr. Brown and Dr. Menindo, so what are some of the factors behind mistrust in, um, and actually I could even say not only minority communities, but in general, um, when it comes to the development of uh, this vaccine and programs for its dis distribution and administration um, in these communities. I think that uh, it's important to note how clearly that was interpreted to us just now. Uh, mm -hmm. 
it would be awesome if we had uh, a lot of uh, well-educated people who could transmit that message to communities mm-hmm. of color. Uh, what's happened historically is we don't have that type of information. In fact, there's been misinformation, under-information, uh, and even worse, there is a story, uh, there is a, a long tragic history of experimentation on communities of color. Uh, if you go back as far as to uh, early 1900s with eugenics movements and the way that uh, black bodies were tampered with in order to progress or understand science, it kind of paints a, a very real and ugly picture of science and uh, in vulnerable communities. And then if you extend forward towards uh, Tuskegee experiments, or if you even bring into conversation Henrietta Lacks, uh, where a lot of the understanding of, our, of how uh, stem cells are used or cells in general, and in terms of Tuskegee, the entire disease process of syphilis uh, kind of like was studied through the course of the lives of several African-American men in the South. Like this is what creates that hotbed of mistrust among black people in the medical, uh, when they interact with the medical community. So the idea of vaccines is not as, as far-fetched um, as, well, the idea that vaccines are not to be trusted is not far-fetched. Uh, particularly because of this very weird um, kind of like, I would say, underwriting. And it was underwritten by mostly federal government. That's a fact. Government sponsored, yes. Right. Uh, Seriously. Can I? Um, Yeah, so let me just jump in there as well. Thanks, uh, Dr. Brown. That's exactly right. And just um, adding on to that is, so I think it's important to, to, to just state openly how, so how the, 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 the trauma of racism and racial discrimination in healthcare, but understanding that for the people who experience it, it's beyond just healthcare. It's just everything. Uh, it's a lot of different areas. And it's also the ways that healthcare has often, as, as Dr. Brown mentioned, not benefited from the, the experimentation on black bodies. He mm-hmm. mentioned Henrietta Lacks and the, the cancer cells that were extracted from her. In 1951, at Johns Hopkins, when she was being treated for cancer, and her family didn't even know about it until the 1970s. And meanwhile, all kinds of of benefit had come from that type of thing. Um, And then no consent, obviously, was was, was given. Um, The same thing with with, um, uh, J. Marion Sims and the experiments that Mm -hmm. he did. Uh, and he's considered, he was elevated and lifted up to be and considered the father of modern gynecology. That's right. And meanwhile, like he was experimenting on the bodies of black women and enslaved black women who never had any opportunity to give consent and weren't even given the benefit of any type of anesthesia uh, and that type of thing. And, and, and it's important for us to, to say their names. So um, Anaka and Betsy and Lucy. Um, mm. And there's a, there was a statue in East Harlem uh, right. to J. Marion Sims. I was just taken down about two years ago after years and decades of community action uh, and community a- advocacy. And I think part of what heightens that sense of distrust is that those same folks who, uh, folks who've done some atrocious things, somehow that gets whitewashed and they end up being elevated. And so if, you know, and we also see it when it comes down to, for instance, when law enforcement uh, officials are involved in, in kill, in harming and killing uh, people of color and oftentimes not even lose their job for it, right? Mm-hmm. Not even go to jail, let alone go to jail and those types of things. So there's just plenty, plenty room for like just doubting a system that is telling you this is good for you um, and is celebrating something 
but meanwhile, there's a long history of harm being done to you uh, and the people, it's transgenerational, that trauma, right? Yes. So just people having lived through generations of this uh, and that type of thing. And then the other thing we'll just quickly say is that the issue around credible messengers. I agree with Dr. Mm. Brown that and we're, we're very fortunate to have the kind of expert doctor, doctors like Dr. Zaka and some other colleagues in the agency who yes. focus on immunizations and have been doing this work for decades. But I think there's also the issue of um, just, and, and public health has caught on to this, right? So now we do a lot of our campaigns around HIV and prostate cancer and stuff. We go to barbershops, you know, we, we partner with various community-based organizations. We work with faith-based organizations and some other places. And so just that I'd, the, 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 the bringing that type of awareness and getting the buy-in from trusted voices in the community who then can continue to sort of cascade that message and continue to beat that drum in the, in the, among their constituents and among the people who are listening to them, who yes. are following them, who are part of their, their, their grouping or whatever type that might be, uh, is sort of, so the infrastructure, infrastructure needed is the infrastructure of trust. Um, and I think just, we just have to recognize also, and I'll, I'll stop at this point, is what, what is a de facto two-tier healthcare system in this country, healthcare delivery system. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's on the basis of, we have some of the most amazing um, uh, healthcare facilities in, in big cities like New York and other places, many of the places that you guys uh, are, are practicing in. Um, but if you look at some of these places, um, there are, for instance, just using the proxy of Medicaid, right? So there's literally two different buildings that people go to if you're, if you're coming to deliver a baby and mm -hmm. you, you have Medicaid as your insurance versus if you have private insurance. And we know in a city like New York, 60, 70 plus percent of the people on Medicaid are people of color. And so yes. that, that appears to be an apartheid type system. Yeah, the, the, even the, the feel when you get inside the building, the feel is different from one building to the other. And then also you get into these spaces and you don't often see people who sound and look like you and maybe who you feel comfortable with and mm -hmm. that type of thing. And so it's all, it's all interconnected. It's all interconnected. The way we think of the social determinants of health, I think we should absolutely think of the social determinants, the structural determinants of vaccination around COVID. I think we should absolutely be thinking you know, all the different pieces that tie together for people to feel comfortable about making a decision uh, to move forward. And again, this is not to, to, to validate the, the anti-vaxxer messaging or any of those other things that we definitely want to just completely have been debunked and we definitely want to, you know, stay on the messaging that's appropriate. Yes. Uh, but I think it, we should also be mindful that people have lived through these things uh, and continue to live. It's not just the experiments of Tuskegee that were 40 years in the making. They were from 1932 to like 1970. Um, yes. So this happened for a long period of time. Yes. But there's an ongoing experience um, of, of, of discrimination that I think people just feel very uncomfortable with and need to be able to be, the, 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 the ground of trust has to be cultivated. Um, and that's something I think like right now on a national basis, and this is where when you look at news sometimes and you see who's running a press conference sometimes, like it's just, it's just completely unhelpful. Um, some of the stuff that we're hearing and seeing and folks talking about swallowing, you know, disinfectants and all these types of weird yes. things um, and hesitating to use masks and all that. But meanwhile, we know the things that can make and, and could have saved lives and, should, and could continue to save lives. And so staying on that messaging uh, deploying and working with uh, trusted messengers from these communities 
and mm. different other communities as well, Latino communities and other people, but African-Americans and black people in particular um, have a very long, painful history of, um, of, uh, of discrimination. And, and I think those things have to be taken into account. No, without, without question, I'm with you 1000%. And one thing that um, uh, you said really kind of stood out to me, both for yourself, um, Dr. Maniendo and Dr. Brown, was that I felt like there's a, a theme of um, accountability, right? That uh, really we need to uh, talk about. And um, I say that because, you know, as we said, through these centuries, right, of uh, exploitation, um, as we said, experimentation um, on black bodies, um, and then we're not even able to take advantage of the benefits of uh, that research, right? And no one being held accountable. As you said, those sentiments definitely are still alive today. Um, right. And really going forward, I think that's something that we um, ought to address. And actually, we do that here on Health in Harlem um, each and every week, trying to address those things. But going forward, how um, sort of what can we um bring to the table as far as messaging and um uh, reassure individuals now that that is happening right where we are um not only making sure that as we're doing these trials that people are are being you know that we're being safe about doing so um and that we are we have everyone's best interest in mind with the development of this vaccine i think that there is a uh, a, a poor understanding in general around what vaccines do uh, mm. and really how they're dispatched, what the purpose is. And then there's just misinformation that, that has kind of pervaded uh, our community around COVID-19. So we have a two you know, directional uh, approach right now. We have to do an information campaign or education campaign around COVID-19 and an education campaign around vaccination. Uh, they've done these vaccination campaigns before where they're educating people, but this has to be tailored to uh, the communities of color, specifically black communities and Latino communities. I think mm. it's because you see the, the disproportionate effects that happen in these communities and uh, naturally public health advocates are trying to, uh, I would say, not just fast track the vaccine distribution, but target the vaccine distribution in a way that it would have a bold effect. And the uh, I would say the difficulty or the conflict there is if you come too aggressively towards communities of color, it looks like you're trying to do experimentation. And if you come at it in a way that is right. not as, as active, then it looks right. as though you're leaving them out of the conversation. If you're trying to enroll them in studies, right. it looks like coercion. If you mm -hmm. don't enroll them and under enroll them, then it looks like you left them behind. So there's this like weird balance that people are trying to achieve. Right. And what we need to do is see more forward facing uh, people that are that look like us. We need to see people who come from the community, who uh, have expertise in the field, right. who know about research, who understand the data, who can interpret data uh, and then can be on these committees that help create these campaigns and strategies. So that is where we're having a lapse right now is there is the only aggressive thing that needs to be happening is the aggressive uh, identifying of people who are capable of building these strategies with the folks who are the experts in those particular fields. Now, when it comes to these educational campaigns, I think that uh, one of these doesn't even need vaccine expertise, like just informing people about COVID-19 appropriately, like mm -hmm. so that we stop believing that this is a fake disease. So we start understanding that this is real and that you right. need to have uh, their preventative measures. And then the ultimate right. preventive measure would be a vaccine. 
right? So understanding that link. And then for the vaccine campaign, I think that we need to go back and, and really work at the way that, that our, our doctor in the beginning explained how it, it works, what the mechanism is. Because there's a lot of people, if you just ask a casual black person in a barbershop, they're going to tell you that they think vaccines lead to zombies. And I know that's weird, but that's the kind of conversations that I get from brothers that I talk to. They're like, yeah. I'm not going to get that vaccine. Uh, I don't want to end up like yeah. the movies. Yeah. We see more of those things yeah. in, in common culture and TV that uh, essentially yeah. satirize the process uh, and, and cause us to have a great confusion around it. So mm-hmm. we have to do the work on the back end uh, as far as getting people up to speed to understand that they've been getting vaccines since they were kids. And if they have kids, their kids have been getting vaccines. And if they're an adult, every time they come into my emergency department after getting into a, some type of a scrape or fall or have an injury, I want to give them a small dose of a vaccine so that they have protection against certain things. So you have to talk about it in a way that is so casual uh, that it reduces some of the anxiety that exists around it. But it has to come from appropriate sources. But I guess my next question, as far as these trials are concerned, um, uh, Dr. Zucker, how are we going about bringing this message, uh, if you have any information on that, bringing this message into communities of color and therefore enrolling them in the trials? Because this is sort of the next challenge in making sure that we have some uh, uh, good evidence and good research to go from and making sure that this is a safe and effective vaccine. Um, we need to enroll minority um, patients. We need to get people that, that are in these trials um, that are representative of the entire population, correct? I think that's going to be critical. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be critical to the eventual acceptance of the vaccine once it's licensed. Um, all I, I'm not directly involved with mm-hmm. how they're doing um, this recruitment, but I do know that that's an essential part of what the plan is to engage minority communities so that they they can be part of the trials. But I have heard it it is challenging, and it's for all the reasons, you know, that we've been talking about so far. Yes. And uh, a couple of the the companies actually have sort of uh, initiatives, and this is really coming down from the National Institutes of Health as far as uh, making sure that we have a representative um, population sort of participating uh, in these trials. And some of the typical methods, right, going into the community and, you know, showing up at um, uh, health fairs um, or going into the barbershops and, and places where people congregate in these communities, unfortunately, because of COVID, we can't do that, right? So it's like, what are we left with um, as far as the next mediums uh, to do that? So, um I guess, uh, yes. I was going to say, from what I hear, they've been trying to activate uh, faith-based groups to try to uh, recruit, as well as going through pre-approved channels, people who are kind of like uh, either essential workforce members who have some working knowledge of uh, health issues, Mm -hmm. but don't necessarily, like, they're not, I would say, skilled providers in those spaces. Um, Funny anecdote, I have a brother that, uh, he is a psychiatrist out at Harvard, and he said, you know, I'm a young black guy I should enroll in this study so I can try to promote or advance and I thought it was pretty noble of him uh to to want to like involve himself in that so he 
went and did the uh, entire process. And then in one of the exclusion criteria or one of the criteria was saying that you had to be abstinent uh, for the entire period of the study in order to do it. And he said, uh, he had a conversation with his wife and it was like, all right, well, you know, we're trying to have a baby. Yeah. You know, like, wow. And so, you know, those types of things need to be like, this is how you have to approach it is like understand the barriers that exist to communities of color because this is a very intelligent brother who these life circumstances are different and they vary amongst different like age groups they vary amongst different communities uh, or ethnicities and those details can pose potential barriers to recruitment uh, yes. but that can come from not having people invested in the part of creating the study design uh, yes. earlier uh, higher up and i understand the reason why they say those things for for uh trying to keep it as controlled as possible but uh we have to do even more education uh to kind of uh, amplify the process and say like hey we need to commit to this i'll just say that sounds really strange because some of these trials are going on for a year or two years and i, I would i would venture a guess that they would have in general, trouble recruiting across the board. A lot of trouble right. <laughs> recruiting, yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm sure, just for example, with live virus vaccines, like when you give a rubella vaccine, you want people, you know, when you're giving it to women, you don't want them to be pregnant for the month afterwards, just because you don't want any risk, you know, to if they get pregnant to the fetus. So I can understand where after a vaccine dose, because it's a new vaccine, they would yes. want precautions for a month, you know, but but really beyond that or a vaccine, it, I wouldn't even know why there would be biologic that, you know, basis or something, you know, after the immediate vaccination, because it is a new, a new vaccine, a new technology. And so that initial precaution would, would make sense, but not something much beyond that. So what I'm saying is we need to make sound bites of what you just said. Right. And we need to make it able, yeah. like, able to tell that to people. Because if I'm reading the paper and I'm, uh, you know, my name is Chauncey and, and I, uh, you know, work as a, a sanitation worker and I'm trying to help and I read this and all of a sudden, like, you're telling me I have to be absent and this isn't going to work for me. Rather than saying, hey, this is the reason why. is so that we can have a, a study period that is not affected by outside influence mm -hmm. and it is as safe as possible. Like, mm -hmm. that knowledge changes it for us. And then it's, that will spread just as rapidly as it spreads that this particular thing uh, has these exclusion criteria. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, let's move on a little bit just to in, in terms of not only sort of the the mistrust I think we definitely established sort of you know the reasoning behind why we see um, uh, such hesitancy and mistrust um, and it's really you know attributed to sort of this long history um, as we said especially in marginalized populations um, being exploited by the scientific and medical community but as far as uh, amongst one another in these communities um, a lot of the misinformation and false information um, out there. What are some of the common myths and misconceptions um, around not only vaccine development, but also just vaccines themselves um, and sort of how maybe we, we can combat that? Because I think that's the bigger monster in the room, man. It's just, uh, especially with social media these days and sort of what we see um, around us, um, even sometimes in the news media, 
um, things can be misconstrued and, and then we have a bigger problem with sort of the wrong information being out there and amplified more than, than correct um, and, and uh, more reliable information. You know, I remember early on when this was really here in New York City, just starting to really pick up uh, late February, the beginning of March, you know, there was concern. And of course, at that time, the guidance was different. You know, we're thinking different things at that time as we we're getting to know what this, what, what the real risk was with this virus. And, the, and you know, um, and, and I do recall, you know, going to community events at every event I went to speaking about this thing and saying, folks, then, you know, you know, follow, keep an eye on what's happening with this, um, start to, you know, the whole thing of social distancing, even before we had officially received that as a guidance, you know, we were, we were talking to folks already in the community about that because we just know all crowding in some of our neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, a, again, it's a structural issue. And, you know, that's just the way, that's the way it is. People live in these uh, very high density um, developments and some other things. And this is, you know, there's only but so many supermarkets in the neighborhood. And so yes. everyone has to go to the same place. Only but so many postal service, uh, post, uh, post offices, everyone has to line up at the same post office, whatever. And so there's just elements by which it ends up becoming like a high risk of spread. And so I do remember some of the, one of the events, uh, a gentleman stood up and he was like, man, you know, we got melanin. You know, we ain't got nothing to worry about. <laughs> and I was like, no, my brother, we do. We do. We do have yeah. something to worry about. We got about. everything to worry about. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, everything to worry about. And, and even if right now we're just hearing China and maybe Italy and, and initially New Rochelle and all that stuff, just as we know, these issues end up concentrating in areas of disinvestment. Because mm -hmm. the, the infrastructure for spread and, and for these things to, con to concentrate. Um, and even and interventions, not just this, but right, like as health far as social resources. outcomes. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So all of that is all in that together. And then add to that the institutional racism. So if, if you or I get sick, we might go in there and might not get the same treatment everyone is getting. And mm -hmm. so just putting out there that there is, and again, not to, not to put out thing that makes people whatever, but we already, I think people of color already know this whether it's maternal, child health, uh, the factors that lead to infant mortality, asthma deaths and others aren't always just down to your, 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 your health status. And oftentimes it's also how you inter what the interaction is with the healthcare system once you arrive in through those doors. So just saying that at that point, just saying, brother, no, especially, and I asked him, but do you smoke? He's like, yeah, I smoke. I said, no. So you have every possible reason and at that time, we didn't even know the full scope of this thing. But just sort of out there, there was just that type of, uh, that type of um, you know, myth. Um, and then we're looking at the data coming out of Africa. And at that time, there were very few cases. Mm -hmm. And there were many different reasons for that, including just not a lot of testing, but also because, you know, it's a younger population. It was whatever. There's lots of different reasons why. And that's still being trying to, trying to, uh, trying to be understood at this time. But the cases are rising there very quickly now. And so they have just been latent. But there was all of these different reasons. Um, and then it just became apparent. So one of the things we're doing at uh, the health department um, as the equity component of the response is to work with, so we, we, the, we were able thankfully to get a $10 million location from City Hall mm -hmm. to fund directly community-based organizations so that they can get the word out about testing, about tracing, and then hopefully when the vaccine conversation comes out, so even now starting to cultivate that right vaccine now. conversation, uh, yeah, sure. some of that right now, because yeah. what, what to, to Dr. Brown's earlier point is we're either like, you know, that, that's a tricky balance because either you, you, you appear to be pushing too much 
or you're not pushing enough and, uh, and you're leaving folks behind. And so that's and part of the reason why we find ourselves even in that type of dichotomy is because we want the groundwork hasn't been done. So if we had been doing the groundwork, if we had been cultivating those relationships, if we had been focused on a pipeline of healthcare providers of color and getting more people into the field, if we had been supporting, you know, all the different elements of this that are upstream to the issue at hand, right, we would have had a stronger infrastructure. But now that we are where we are, I feel like it's time to devote resources, like how we devote. So we just talked about how billions were given to the, um, the, the companies, the pharmaceutical companies right. to work on. Yeah. To work on that. I think at this, at this time, like millions of dollars should be as we've done with the CBOs in New York city. I think even more so can be done uh, to really, uh, and then partnering them up with, the correct messaging and making sure that we're building their capacity to keep telling that story. So a lot of work has been done around stigma in HIV, stigma yes. around, you know, mental health, stigma around some of these other things. A lot of, and all of those things took millions and millions of dollars to even get whatever sort of progress that's been made. So I just want to make sure that we also, from the accountability standpoint, you mentioned earlier, um, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Zelby is also saying like, let's be accountable to what it actually takes to get this done. Right. And so I hear what um, Dr. Brown is saying, just in terms of even getting that type of clear, concise messaging and even in sort of like just in ways that folks can consume and all that type of thing. And I think that's important. Um, but then also going like one or two steps upstream to where we're creating like the, the, the right sort of environment for that messaging to even survive uh, with all the other messaging that's out there. And then so sort of looking at what already exists. And then working with those groups, like you said, uh, Dr. Selby, a lot of folks think uh, black certain topics or are less open to certain things. Mm -hmm. But I think it's how you approach black folks. If you approach black folks a certain way, uh, you might be able to get some traction there. You might be able to get uh, folks to buy in and actually become champions of change and that mm -hmm. type of thing. And I think trusting folks to do that, um, but resourcing them the right way to Dr. Uh, Dr. Brown's point, really uh, making sure that we're not, so you know how there's a thing in public health that we sometimes do where we say, well, we give you this educational program, now go do better, right? So, mm -hmm. the, you know, no, 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 no better, do better. And that's, that's sometimes that's not fair. Sometimes that's yeah. not really fair. We leave them structural issues that mm -hmm. even with that knowledge, exactly, they can't, they can, that's not just knowing more isn't going to address the economic instability that prevents you from being able to whatever. Um, or, or the housing issues or the food access issues that go with some of these things um, and why people have to, you know, feel like if they don't have insurance or they're underinsured or whatever the case may be, um, just making sure that, you know, we're investing in all the upstream things that could really allow, and then at the same time, continuing with that messaging and that framing and getting it out there and also allowing credible messengers to take some of that messaging and say it in a way that folks can get it. Uh, and then it's reinforced by experts who can come in and sort of add, you know, some of the technical things that people are saying, okay, I get that, but how does that exactly work? And somebody can come and explain that uh, and that type of thing. And, and now in the era of Zoom and all these different things that we're doing, there is opportunity actually to maybe get the message out even more widespread uh, than we would have done in the past. And so, uh, and which is why I think your podcast is really, really timely and essential. Uh, but I definitely feel like a big element of this that shouldn't go unmentioned is the investment that will be needed and investing in credible groups, incredible voices, investing in the community themselves to become empowered. Once community owns the thing, 
they're going to run with it. They're going to make True it story. work. And uh, had, they need to be resourced. For yeah. Now, I wanted to say that the, the, the hard part is that this stuff may already, some of this may be already be happening. Uh, the problem is we have a lack of transparency, uh, mm. is that if, if yeah. there is funding going towards these things, if there's already, uh, you know, the commissioning of groups or task force or working groups by, <clears throat> by in, within government organizations to do these things, we don't know about it. And that makes people a little bit right. more suspicious. That raises the shade right. bar uh, right. in our community. And so right. that is an essential thing to understand is that we already have a degree of mistrust that is like a, the minimum threshold. And by not giving transparent inf information to us transparently or broadly saying like, hey, we are yeah. thinking of this problem upstream. In fact, yes. when we released the funds around it, we also released funds towards this or we created grant funding for that or created requirements in yeah. our, for our grant funders to think about yeah. these problems. Like saying that makes me feel a little bit better. But if you don't say it, then I have to right. dig. Right. Go ahead, Dr. Zucker. Yeah, so I, I want to just, I think there's another component that, that I want to bring up and that's getting community input. You know, we've just been talking about giving information to the community mm. and engaging them in ways to disseminate information. But I think it's equally as important to get input into, into what the plans are. So I actually had the privilege of presenting some of the same information we've been talking about to one of the community advisory boards. Um, that the health department has put together to help guide some of the COVID response. And I, and part of it was one to let people know where we are, right, with, with vaccine planning, mm -hmm. and, and actually to get input. Like, tell me who you think are essential workers, you know, like mm. this, that, you know, we're, we, and, and we're truly at the early stages of these decisions. Like, there's not a decision that was made that I'm going to tell someone. I'm asking, the health department's asking for this input now to help guide what our plans will be. Mm -hmm. Some of the questions were, where do you think, you know, your constituents will go for a vaccine? You know, mm -hmm. and that speaks to the trust issue, right? The relationship with the, their medical provider who, who they may trust. So what would be the point of the health department putting up a large clinic somewhere if people aren't going to go, right? If that's true story, right? So, but we, so we, yeah. so I think the health department has started this process, and and it's and for me, it's wonderful because it's early. You know, we're at this stage where where this community input can help guide what we do to really meet the needs of the community. You know, and what will work to establish that trust. I think one of the expressions I heard, which was Dr. Nayendo you know, that infrastructure of trust. And I think starting these conversations now to get input into the planning, you know, can help, to, you know, toward achieving that. Yes. And one thing um, I want to get out there uh, mm -hmm. to all of our listeners is really um, exactly what you just said, Dr. Zucker, and that we want to establish, as we said, even at the outset of the show, a conversation um, with everyone, right? So anyone out there right now with questions, comments, or concerns, um, definitely, we want to hear about that on Health in Harlem. Um, and really, from just taking what all of you have said so far um, uh, leading up to this, is, is really, it sounds like we just want to meet everybody sort of where they are to, to get this message um, out. And I mean, I will tell you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, I do think that there will be a safe and, 
efficacious vaccine uh, that will be, be developed. And as a frontline provider, I will strongly consider um, taking a vaccination uh, because I'm out there every day treating patients and not only uh, to protect myself, but my family as well. But that decision will be made based on solid evidence, right? Reliable evidence, reliable information um, that I will, you know, sort of research and make sure that um, everything is okay and not some of the stuff that we see coming from other mediums and other sources. Um, and really, that's, that's what I, I think is probably the biggest thing is that as we go forward, just really making these decisions for ourselves, for our families and loved ones, um, we want to make these decisions um, based on reliable and, as we said, scientific evidence and sort of not what we hear in the community, because I agree with Dr. Brown, the zombie right apocalypse starting from a vaccine. <laughs> it was a story. I think The number of times I've heard people say I'm not getting the vaccine. And like literally, if I had a dollar for every time someone said I might be able to cut down my student loan. <laughs> like That's how common it is. Yeah, man. I mean, these are real things out there, real misconceptions. And, um, you know, I think part of it is, yeah. right, we see in Hollywood. I think that was the basis for I Am Legend, if I'm correct. I hope I'm not wrong. That is the exact movie that they are referencing <laughs> the majority of the time. Is I Am Legend. And I'm saying to them, like, listen, I love Will Smith. But do you, if you for a second think that Will Smith is not going to support this vaccine, you are outside of your mind. Yeah. Exactly. Outside of your mind, because he's already stood up and said he is one of the most prominent figures that we have in the community. And when he says things, mostly everybody listens. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, it, it, you have to divorce the idea of what we see in cinema and what is happening in real time. Yes. Real time. <laughs> and, and, and looking at that, you know, one thing I think, too, is facing head on um, these real concerns um, as we said, and so, right, the safety concerns with vaccinations and, you know, one thing I've put out there, and even we've talked about this in the past um, on the show in, in just in terms of vaccines um, in general, and just as with any intervention, um, and I say this to all my patients, even any intervention, any medicine that we give, right, there's always the chance of adverse effects. Um, but when we look at the benefits of wow. vaccination, and we have a proven track record, right, if we look at... Um, sort of the history of um, infectious diseases, right? This is not the first time that society has been uh, temporarily shut down because of infectious diseases, right? We've seen polio outbreaks in New York City that crippled the city and kept children out of school. We've seen measles and mumps and- um, Smallpox. Yeah, smallpox, yeah. All of these very dangerous infections, right? These huge outbreaks that killed um, uh, people and, and severely you know, crippled society. Um, and what was the thing that sort of helped, you know, amongst the, the social distancing measures and um, those things are definitely effective, right? Mask wearing. Um, and those are adjuncts that will continue even after a vaccine is developed. Um, but one thing that has been proven quite consistently um, and even proven to be safe in the vast majority of people are vaccinations, um, ladies and gentlemen. And, and we're going to get into that stuff more, you know, further with each other. That's a whole separate show. show yeah. but. Um, but this is something that that is uh, we want you to just at least consider this as a viable, um, especially in the communities that are impacted the most. As we begin to wrap up um, from just each of you, I would say I just want to know what would you say is probably the most important thing that our listeners um, should really take home um, from this this program or this episode? 
Yeah, I'll say there are two trials that, I mean, two of the vaccines are being tested in New York City for your listeners, and a, a third vaccine is actually supposed to start testing probably not the end of this month, in September. So there are options. I'll just say I'll be remiss if I didn't uh, bring up a flu vaccine at oh, the yes. in time um, that we do have you know, that we, the health department, I mean, we're all worried about having both influenza and the coronavirus circulating at the same time in the fall. And we don't have a COVID vaccine now, but we do have a flu vaccine. Yeah. And so that is just really important for, for your listeners. Um, you know, people are just starting to get vaccinated. Vaccine is just being distributed now. Mm-hmm. September and October are perfect times to get, to get vaccinated. And this way it will prevent respiratory illness. And right, we don't want people being sick and then worrying, do I have flu? Do I have coronavirus? Or both, because we know co-infection is a don't. big, a big That's deal. That's what I'm talking about, co-infection. Co-infection. Mm-hmm. And then also we don't want, people are hesitant to go to medical facilities as it is. And so if we can prevent if some in, influenza illness, mm-hmm. then people won't you know, be in a position to have to go to the hospital because they're having high fever or having trouble breathing and it also won't overwhelm the medical system. Yes. Because there's always a flood of patients related to influenza. Facts. Those of you in the emergency room know that, right? Yep, every um, year. Right, every year. Without fail. Right, so, but at least there is a flu vaccine, you know, that people can get now, you know, to to prevent influenza infection. Yes. Thank you very much, Dr. Zucker. I want to make my comments very concise and uh, targeted. I'm going to speak directly to your viewers. So we have to accept that this is a new normal. We have to accept that this is the mode of operating going forward. Um, As much as we have been enlivened by social justice and this desire, you need to think of this as a form of social justice. You need to liken this to that same desire to be seen, to feel like you have some uh, ability to push accountability on the system. Um, But that means you have to be invested too. So do your part. Like you have to think about it as a two-way street. If you want to be seen, if you want to get something tailored to you, you have to also give. You have to also put your fingers in the dirt. And part of that means giving this insight, making sure that you're doing what's necessary, whether it's preventative measures, hand washing, covering your face with a mask, social distancing, quarantining if you've been received, if you've received a positive COVID test, um, just being responsible on that end, as well as getting a flu vaccine to help kind of just help us care providers uh, in terms of like not be overburdened by the full mass of two, three, four different (laughs) viral uh, things that'll be going on in a few Mm -hmm. months. Um, And and with that, I will say that we've asked for centuries and and even more so are asking for this seat at the table. Uh, The table is set. You need to sit down. You have to go there and then make sure that you are 100% invested in trying to uh, uplift the community through small actions, Mm -hmm. right? So that's kind of what I say to the viewers. And I really, uh, you know, as an ER physician, this hits home because, you know, we stay on the front, front line. I've seen my friends um, go down because of COVID-19. I, every Black person that I know of has at least one person that they know who's died because of COVID-19. Like, and that's the same crazy. here. That's a, that's a fact. Every Black person that I know. And so I don't want that to be our swan song. I want us to be more resilient. 
and that requires us to do things that make sense. Thank you very much, Dr. Brown. And Dr. Manindo? Sure. Um, yeah, no, I just want to echo uh, the, the point about being at the table. I think for me, the, the, the way I would put it for, for all your the audience here is, man, we have to live. We have to survive this thing. We've got to survive this thing uh, with as many of our people with us as we can. Yes. Um, and already that's been a problem, uh, has, has already been mentioned. Um, so I'm, so I'm an assistant commissioner for the Bureau of Harlem Neighborhood Health. But in the last several, last seven or eight months, I've been supporting the, the Bureau in Brooklyn, the Bureau in the Bronx, and I've been uh, seeing the neighborhood response teams uh, that are even in places like Elmhurst and Corona and different parts of Queens and other parts of the city. Um, and the thing that everyone is mentioning here, I mean, because we all know New York City was really hit hard. Yes. And, um, and so we, 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 we either we know somebody, we, everyone knows somebody that's been sick or people who have died. Um, and, and even in the apartment building we live in, you know, there's been multiple people who have been sick and, 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 and who knows the number who died or whatever. And so it's, it's, it's close. It's close. Um, and so the thing is, it's really a survival. It's an issue of survival here. Um, and has been mentioned already, um, you know, if we're not at the table, um, not only in terms of getting, um, being a part of a trial, especially now with these trials that are being scrutinized and are being watched by everybody because everyone is keenly interested in these trials. This isn't, you know, the multiple other trials going on that nobody even knows about, but these are well-known. These are, you know, these are knowable uh, if you don't already know and your provider can get information for you as well and share that with you. Um, you know, if you're a suitable candidate or whatever the case may be. Um, but if it's not only that, but it's also at the table where, you know, um, um, some of the decisions are being made and some of, the, some of the, the moves that are being made to make this more successful than it, it would have otherwise been, you know, more people, need, more people of color need to be at the table. Um, yes. And so, and as has been mentioned already, um, you know, if we don't, if we don't um, uh, uh, avail our experiences to the process, and the process is devoid of our experience. And, uh, and then coming out of it, you know, who knows whether it's the same level of benefit for us as it is for everyone else. So the main thing is get involved. Um, and, but also, you know, th this is not to disregard and, and just cast away any concerns you've had. Those concerns are rooted in, in experiences that many have had for generations. And so, but it, it educate yourself, inform yourself. The websites that have been given, clinicaltrials.gov, um, you know, of course, the NYC.gov website, CDC as well, uh, but also speak to your provider, as, been, as has been mentioned already, uh, and get some insight from them if that's a person you trust. If that's a person you trust, speak to them um, and, and see, you know, get some insight from them uh, and, and, and discuss this with your family. Think about it and also just be aware of the social media, because I know we mentioned earlier some of the stuff with uh, Will Smith's movie and all that, but I can assure you that stuff is being reinforced by stuff on social media. Yes. Um, and there are folks that are just like like bots, the social media bots that are just like peddling stuff at, at a high rate of speed, and are just like it's just it's it's just wash with wrong information. And just I want our folks to know some of that stuff is designed to make sure we don't survive this stuff. So mm. let's make sure that you know you're really picking through the information carefully and know where it's coming it from. Lightly when mm. you hear, know where it's coming from, know where it's mm. at least you can hold the CDC to some extent. You know, that's a body, that's an entity that collectively we can try to hold accountable if we ever need to do that. We can make noise about it, we can put stuff in the media, but some of the stuff that's shadow 
over the social over social media, you don't even know who who who's putting that stuff out there. Mm. Um, so at least go with stuff that you can hold accountable, even if you don't initially feel like you can trust it. But at least you can question it. At least you can ask somebody else who knows somebody who can talk to it uh, and that type of thing. And and, uh, um, and, and uh, I'm really thinking about this as really. Exactly, exactly. And we have to survive this is my is my bottom line here uh, and try to get through this um, so that we can, you know, keep building towards the upstream issues and dismantling the bigger legacy of racism, uh, as opposed to sort of the rushed things we have to do now. Uh, I think we have to do those things because we're in an emergency, we're in a global pandemic. But at some point, you know, once we if we if we can survive this, you know, then we, we keep fighting the, the rest of the good fight to make some of those other changes, but we have to get through this. So that's what I put out there for your audience, for the audience that's listening. I want to thank you guys so much, man, on a Sunday morning for joining me to get this information out there. And uh, I'm going to say on behalf of our listeners, I'm going to thank you all um, as well. And uh, one thing too, is that you, you three are welcome. I think ladies and gentlemen, right. Um, this is definitely, as we said, something that's still in development. Um, with this vaccine. With that said, um, this is probably going to be an ongoing series. It will be an on ongoing series here on Health in Harlem. Um, that's a fact, right? We are not going to leave you hanging. And as we get more information, we're going to come back and talk about this some more um, and also reach out to you out there so that we can get your feedback on what you want to know um, about this whole process. Um, as we said, that this was essentially this program, this show, is the start of a dialogue, right? Um, and so I want you to, just as you would comment back or on that Snapchat or um, Instagram post that you see, um, or that, that zombie that you see from, uh, uh, I'm pretty sure it had to be I Am Legend. Uh, we want you to comment on what you heard today, right? I want to know what you're thinking about this whole um, uh, process of development of this vaccine. And uh, with that said, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Health in Harlem. And the only thing that we ask, um, so man, I was wrong in the beginning, right? We do ask you one thing on this show, and that's just to share what you've learned um, on the program. Uh, just share it with anyone that will listen, right? Somebody in the neighborhood at the, well, not at the water cooler at work anymore because we distance, uh, but any, on your next Zoom call, whatever it is, just get this information out there. We want good information that people can uh, really make informed decisions and live the healthiest life possible. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning into Health in Harlem. This show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself.